Good evening. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for another opportunity to uh, come under the hearing of your word and come under the authority of your word. I pray that you would help us to uh, see what's really there and be careful to apply it to our lives and that we would enjoy our time together as a church family. So we ask your blessing on our time and we ask it in the name of your son. Amen. Paul pointed out the humor that uh, the word that was changed is uh, unchangeable, but uh, there was an interesting, interesting fact about that song. I really thought that would be funny. You guys are not interested in laughing right now. Okay. Last week we started, uh, I'll just start then, <laughs> we began a mini-series called uh, A Tale of Two Kings, The Chicken and the Champion, and our chicken was introduced as Uh, King Saul, who disobeyed God by not completely destroying the Amalekites. The text says that the reason he did it was because he feared the voice of the people. Thus, Saul was forever enshrined as another imperfect leader of God's people. And we were left with a desire, with a longing for a leader who would one day come to make everything right, who would never give in to fear who would never give in to the voice of the people and who would carry out God's commands perfectly in our place because we know that we can't. Our story tonight will focus on the second king, the one we are calling the champion. And uh, many of you have probably guessed who this is. You probably even know uh, what episode of his life we're going to talk about this evening. It's one of the most popular narratives in the Old Testament And it occurs only two chapters after last week's story. So tonight we'll be talking about David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So you can start turning to 1 Samuel 17. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find that on page 299. Last week's story was meant to make us long for the Messiah by giving us a negative picture of leadership. And tonight we will look at a leader who represents Jesus in a very positive way, although we know that David, too, would ultimately prove to be imperfect. We know that, but as far as this story is concerned, he does a very good job of representing his own descendant, King Jesus, the true king. And this story is going to whet our appetites for that true king. So you know the story of David and Goliath well. Like, I don't even have to cover all of the details just because so many of you have heard it over and over again. Even, even unchurched people know the basic plot points of the David and Goliath story. Uh, one of the most well-known narratives in the Bible. What you may not know or you may not remember is uh, how long of a story it is. Like if you're, if you're there in your Bible, just look down into the text of Scripture and see the, the entire chapter is dedicated to this one story, and there's like 58 verses in that chapter. That's over 1,700 words in the ESV. Last week's story was just shy of 1,000 words. This is a very long story. It's actually the longest single narrative in all of Old Testament history, from Joshua to Esther. This is the longest story. One of the reasons that it's so long is that the author includes a number of details uh, that seem maybe a little out of place or, or maybe unnecessary at first glance. Uh, for example, why does the story tell us that David went down to the river to grab smooth stones for his sling? Or 
Uh, why does David need to explain to Saul that he has killed lions and bears as a shepherd? I, I get that these details move the story along and allow it to be a, a cohesive whole, but uh, what, what function are these details actually serving for the story? Why are they actually there? I think the answers are in the book of 1 Samuel, but outside of our story. Let's look quickly at these questions, just as, uh, by way of introduction. I think you'll find it interesting and, and helpful. Uh, turn back just a couple pages to 1 Samuel 13. In 1 Samuel 13, there's just a few verses that, if you're reading through the book, they would seem a little out of place. You'd wonder, okay, what's the significance of that? Uh, for chapter 13, starting in verse 19, let me read a few verses for you. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of axes and for setting the goads. Okay? So we learn in 1 Samuel, before getting to David and Goliath, that the Philistines, for at least part of King Saul's reign, were completely controlling metal production in the land of Israel. The author of 1 Samuel has designed the book in a way that you would learn this fact before you read the story of David and Goliath. This changes just a little bit the way we think about David going to the river to pick up rocks. While the Philistines are putting their trust in man-made instruments and in controlling the supply chain, the economy, David finds some all-natural ammunition. <laughs> the, there's no blacksmiths in Israel. There's no bronze for David. That's okay. Goliath's weapons are man-made. David's have been formed by his God. Kind of interesting. Uh, the fact that metal was so hard to come by also means that when David fought the lion and the bear, he probably did it with a flint knife. Uh, we find later in the story that there is only a handful of people in the army who, who had good weapons, in Israel's army, that is. Uh, but that's not even the interesting part of David fighting the lion and the bear. Here's what I mean. Let me answer this second question. Uh, our first, uh, when David is introduced to us in the book of 1 Samuel, that happens in chapter 16, he's shown to be the youngest of eight sons, and he's taking care of sheep while Samuel is looking for the next king that God has chosen. So our first impression of David is that he is a faithful shepherd. David is not the first of God's leaders to, be, um, to have trained for leadership as a shepherd. Uh, Moses, obviously, spent 40 years in the wilderness taking care of livestock for Jethro, his father-in-law. Lots of other Old Testament heroes spent a portion of their life attending livestock. But David is introduced to us from the start as a faithful shepherd, and his abilities and commitment as a shepherd are confirmed when the author tells us that he has slain lions and bears in order to watch his father's flock. But how is King Saul introduced to us in the book of 1 Samuel? Well, for that, you'll have to flip to chapter 9. That is the first time when King Saul is introduced. I'll read a couple verses from there as well in 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. 
Verse 1 starts off by saying, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. It lists some of Kish's genealogy, and and then it says that he was a Benjamite. He was a man of wealth. Verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, if we stop there from a human perspective, Samuel, or sorry, Saul seems to be the guy. He seems to be like the perfect leader. The Israelites demand a king from Samuel. Who better than this tall, rich, handsome man from a good family? Now, that's how we would think from a human perspective. But when we think from God's perspective, from God who historically has chosen shepherd leaders to be leaders of his people, we need to keep reading. Verse 3, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of Shalisha, but he did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. What's the text trying to tell us? Saul is a bad shepherd. Saul's failure as a shepherd should indicate to the reader that he may not be the best leader or the best king. A commentary that I find really helpful notes this as well. I'm going to read a short entry for you commenting on those verses that I just read. It says, Saul's unfitness to serve as the shepherd of the Lord's flock is further suggested in the unusual narrative recounted here. Semitic leaders throughout ancient times were often referred to as shepherds. The Torah's most significant patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, were also depicted as skillful shepherds. Yet here, Saul is portrayed unflatteringly as an incompetent shepherd. So great was his ineptness that he could not even find a few large animals that had wandered away from his father's house, ones that ultimately returned home without Saul's assistance, even as he was searching for them. Once again, the author of 1 Samuel would have assumed that you read this story about Saul and about David being a shepherd before getting to the story of David and Goliath, where David and Saul actually talk to each other about David's experiences as a shepherd. So there's a great contrast between Saul and David, and one of the ways that he shows that is by showing that David is a good shepherd. And that's one of the reasons that the story is so long. There's so many details and what we might call Easter eggs in the story like this. But also, since the story is so long, we better get started with the actual text. So similar to last week's message, I've broken it up into three scenes for you. And uh, scene one is verses 1 through 11, and it's called A Giant Problem. Pun intended, and I'm not sorry about it. Let's look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistine. I'm not going to read every verse for you. Verse 3 talks about the each army standing on a mountain with a valley between them. We're familiar with that scene. They have very good visibility of each other this way. Then verse 4 introduced the uh, champion of the Philistines. It says there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, 
whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. A couple different words for shield in Hebrew. Uh, This one seems to be referring to a full body shield that would completely cover a soldier. So he's protected from projectiles. I'll translate some of those other measurements for you. It says he was six cubits and a span tall. Uh, Six cubits and a span would come out to nine feet and nine inches, which is massive. We aren't actually 100% sure that he is this tall. I was just having a conversation before uh, this service with someone about this. There's actual a te- actually a textual variant in the, uh, some of the old manuscripts that uh, could change the height of Goliath. Either way, uh, Goliath was much, much taller than the average Israelite, the average person. I tend to think that he was actually nine feet and nine inches tall because of some of the other details uh, that are given. For one, uh, King Saul was a head taller than everyone else in, in Israel. And uh, so if Goliath was only uh, six foot or six foot and six inches tall, he probably wouldn't have been that much larger than their own king, and it could have been a fair fight, but they were all petrified of Goliath. But another reason is because of the weight of his armor. Uh, 500 shekels was how much his coat weighed. Uh, that comes out to 125 pounds. So I'm, I'm not quite 6'6", but I'm close to that, and I would, uh, I would struggle to carry around 125 pounds plus another 15 or so pounds on my head plus the tip of the, uh, the spear was another 10 to 15 pounds. Uh, so all of that weight would have been difficult and almost unmanageable even for a very strong 6'6 six six person. So for those reasons, I do tend to think that he was actually 9 foot 9 inches tall. So hopefully you're picturing Goliath and what it would be like to look at someone and have to look up like three or four feet to meet his eye line. Can you imagine that? It's hard to picture. This is the man who's about to challenge God's people. He's the champion of Gath. Let's look at verse 8 to see what he has to say. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come bow down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Then Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine. They were dismayed. They were greatly afraid. So really, two things going on in this initial statement from Goliath. There's some trash talk, and then there's a challenge. The trash talk or the the insults in verse 10, when he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Another translation says, I heap shame on the ranks of Israel. He's trying to be intimidating, and it appears to be working because verse 11 says that the Israelites were dismayed and greatly afraid. They probably aren't scared of the trash talk, though, are they? They're probably scared of the challenge. The challenge is a form of representative combat. Some believe that it was done to avoid massive bloodshed. Only one person would have to die, and that would determine the outcome of the battle or possibly even the war. 
Some believe that the Israelites had never heard of this kind of combat because Goliath had to explain it to them. Uh, But you know how it works. One representative from each side, and the nation of the loser would serve the nation of the winner. This is a real problem for the nation of Israel because they don't have a Goliath. They have a Saul. Verse Verse 11 says that he is afraid. And last week in 1 Samuel 15, we learned that God's people need a better leader than Saul, someone who isn't scared. Some of the Israelites were probably asking themselves the same question that we imagined them asking last week. What are we going to do? Who will rescue us? Goliath was there, ready for battle, and he's not going anywhere. Later in the story, we could read that uh, he performed this taunt and challenge every morning and every evening for 40 days. Each time the Israelites wondered, what can we do? Is there anyone to help us? I want you to try to imagine with me staring at a challenge, a dangerous situation, something that looks and feels impossible and feeling like there is no one there to help you. Do you see that there's a culture of fear in the camp of Israel. Everyone is scared, and it doesn't appear that anyone is ashamed because everyone is scared. And why wouldn't they be scared? The Hebrews were a small people to begin with. Goliath's armor probably weighs as much as some of them do. And this dude, Goliath, probably has hands the size of pizza pans or something, something big, I don't know, And I want you to use your imagination, but I also want you to get a visual. One of the larger and better known NBA players of all time is Shaquille O'Neal, affectionately called by some Big Shamrock. I want you to see how big Shaq is. He is holding a basketball. Okay, most of you know how big a basketball is. Look at the size of those fingers. It looks like he could just wrap his entire hands around the ball. Here he is holding what appears to be a glazed donut. Just pop that in his mouth, no problem. Here he is drinking a water bottle. (laughs) He makes normal-sized things look miniature. (laughs) That's how big he is. Okay, this dude is a monster. Anyone know how tall he was? Seven foot one. I think I heard some, some people saying it. Seven foot one. Only seven foot one. Only, right? He's about eight or nine inches taller than me. Trying to fight Shaq would just be ridiculous, right? But fighting Goliath is way more ridiculous than this. Goliath would have been uh, over two and a half feet taller than Shaq. He would have dwarfed Shaquille O'Neal. Here's another visual. I'm taller than average, right? I've got pretty long arms too. Let me just reach my hand up like this. See where my fingertips are? I'm probably touching Goliath's chin right now. Maybe just tickling his beard, right? He's way, way up there. He's just way taller than all of us, way, way taller than all of them. People were smaller back then in general. I'm not trying to say that it was right for the Israelites to be afraid. They should have feared God more than man. All of that is true, but it did make sense for them to be afraid from a human perspective because they were given an impossible task. I'm really drawing this out, and part of the reason for that is because I don't have to retell all of the story to you because you're so familiar with it, but the reason I'm trying to hammer in the fact that it's impossible 
is because every human also faces an impossible task. Every one of us also faces an impossible task. We're born into a world that has been cursed by sin. We're born into bodies that have been cursed by sin. Everything you and I have ever seen or touched has been affected by the fall of humanity into sin. And not only that, but we are given laws and rules from God that need to be kept. We have, our, we have our consciences, we have an innate sense of right and wrong, and that's there to be obeyed. But also Jesus said that the law is summarized well in the command to love God and love neighbors. And this may sound simple and easy, but it's not. For you and I to live our lives just obeying our consciences and loving God and loving other people is just as impossible as it would be for an Israelite soldier to slay the champion of Gath. It's so common when looking at the story of David and Goliath to compare ourselves to David and to make application of be brave like David was. Don't do that. At least don't stop there. When we think about it soberly, who is it in the story that we have more in common with? Whose struggle do we share? David's or the individual members of the Israelite army who are watching all of this unfold and scared out of their minds, wondering if anyone can save them? David represents someone else. It's not you and it's not me. Keep that in mind as we continue to scene two of our story. We have a giant problem, but we also have a shocking strategy. This is by far the longest scene of the three in terms of how much text is covered. And it begins by introducing David in verse 12, calling him the son of Jesse, mentioning again that he is the youngest of eight brothers. Verse 13 mentions that the three eldest boys in Jesse's family were in the battle with Saul, if you can call it a battle, while David was home watching the sheep. It doesn't say why only three of the brothers are fighting, uh, but some have assumed that uh, either they were the only three old enough to fight, you had to be 20 to fight in the army, so maybe they were the only ones who were older than 20, or perhaps the law only required three soldiers from each family during wartime. No matter the reason, three are at the battlefield, David is home with the sheep, at least until his father sends him to the battle with some food and provisions for his brothers and for their commander. So if you jump down to verse 20, it says that David rose early in the morning to go to deliver these goods to his brothers. It says that in verse 20. A commentary revealed that it was approximately 14 miles from where David was keeping sheep to the battle. So David must have gotten up very early in the morning to obey his father because he got there in time to hear the morning taunt of Goliath. And it also adds a little bit of color to the story when we think about, you know, there's no horse or donkey mentioned. It's possible David used one, but it's not mentioned. So he walked these 14 miles, most likely, is there for the morning taunt of Goliath, and he's ready to fight. (laughs) Is that our attitude after we walk 14 miles carrying cheese for our brothers? Probably not. That would have been quite the journey. In verses 23 and 24, David gets to hear Goliath the champion utter his taunts against God and God's people, and he sees the reaction of the Israelites. The text says that when they saw the man, they fled for him from him and were much afraid. 
And from this point, the author mainly advances the story through the use of dialogue that David has with other people. So David has conversations with the Israelites in general, and then he'll talk with his oldest brother, Eliab. He'll also talk with King Saul, and finally he will talk with uh, Goliath. This is how the story moves forward at this point. This scene is called a shocking strategy, and that really comes out of the conversation with King Saul, but we'll look briefly at his other conversations as well. So follow along in your Bibles as I read and make some comments as we go, starting in verse 25 of our chapter. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by them, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. From the start, David is interested in becoming uh, the one to fight Goliath. He probably is uh, a little confused as to why nobody else has volunteered so far. Haven't they heard him taunting God? Don't they know that the law requires someone doing that to be put to death? Why hasn't anyone else challenged him or accepted the challenge? There are two things motivating David. The reward from the king, but secondly, and probably more importantly, the fact that Goliath has defied the Lord by defying the army. David is jealous for the name of the Lord among the nations. And his conversations with uh, the members of Israel's army show us that he is interested in being their champion. The next conversation begins in verse 28. David's ambition was showing and his brother didn't like it. This interaction will be relatable to men who grew up with a brother or have a brother, and probably to those who have raised multiple sons as well. It says that Eliab, his eldest brother, this is verse 28, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. Now to me, it kind of sounds like Eliab is the one being presumptuous here, uh, but I'm biased because I'm the youngest one in my family, so I'm going to cheer for the younger brother. Uh, I know you're all cheering for David too, though. His response shows an impressive level of self-control. David says in verse 29, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And that was that. Eliab is not mentioned again in this narrative, and it would be a mistake to think that David isn't angry. Sometimes we look at positive traits, try to identify what is the good trait that's going on here, what's the good characteristic that is being portrayed. It's not that David is not angry, and it's not that anger is wrong. That's not what's going on here. David is angry. He's just not angry at his brother. He's angry at the enemy of God's people, and he doesn't have room or time for that right now. He's too busy being angry with who he's supposed to be angry with and who it is right for him to be angry with. He has no room for other anger. It's focused on what matters. So next, David talks with Saul in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. 
And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go to this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Doesn't sound like Saul needed very much convincing, does it? I know he was reluctant at first to send a child into a fight that he probably should have been the one to fight himself, Uh, but I guess the talk about lions and bears got to him. David is a leader, though, isn't he? Last week, the big idea was that God's people need a better leader. And now we have a teenager stepping up, and King Saul is following him. In fact, King Saul in the next verses attempts to clothe David with his own armor and weapons, which from the perspective of the reader appears to be maybe a foreshadowing of the coronation of David, being clothed in the the king's clothes. Verses 38 and 39 speaks of the armor and the weapons not working well for David because he hadn't tested them. Uh, This makes sense. You don't experiment with uh, new gear on game day. Uh, My cross-country coach in high school always reminded us that uh, there was nothing we could do 15 minutes before a race to uh, radically improve our performance. I think he didn't want us to uh, eat a bunch of sugar or take a bunch of caffeine or something, but it's really true that you don't, that's not the time to experiment with what you use and what you do. Not on game day, right before the big battle. That's not the time. So David sticks with what is familiar. Verse 40 He took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Can you just imagine with me an unarmored shepherd? He's got some rocks and essentially a strip of leather walking up to the champion of Gath who has the best sword, the best army, the best armor, the best shield and the best physique. This is a shocking strategy. We know how the story goes. There's some back and forth between David and Goliath. Goliath continues to insult and curse David, while David expresses confidence that he will emerge victorious. Verse 45, we get to see some of that. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And with those words, the battle begins. The distance between them begins to shrink 
as they approach each other. But it doesn't matter because on David's first shot, he sends a stone whizzing into the forehead of the giant, which sank deep into his skull. Verse 49, David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. The giant falls forward. It's kind of interesting. David fulfills his promise by cutting off the giant's head right after this verse. There are two interesting things about Goliath falling forward. I'll put these in front of you just for your consideration. There's, there's a lot of speculation as to why he fell forward, as in what are the, the physical reasons and like the mechanism of him falling forward. If you get hit by something, you would think you fall backwards. Maybe he stumbled, maybe he spun. We don't really know. There's a lot of speculation about that. But what I do want you to notice is uh, that falling forward is probably included because it's a humble posture. It's as if the giant is bowing down to the new king or maybe even to the God that he was just mocking. But another interesting fact of this, uh, it parallels something that happened earlier, once again, in the book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 5, the Philistines, this same group, had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they placed the Ark of the Covenant in their own temple, in the temple of their god, Dagon. They placed it next to the idol of Dagon, and do you remember what happened? They came back the next day, and the idol Dagon had fallen on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They put him back and come back the next day, and he had fallen on his face again, and his head had come off of him, just like Goliath falling on his face and losing his head. The Psalms warn us that those who make idols and worship them will become like them. For Goliath, that happened in a very literal sense. The ending of this scene is somewhat satisfying to those who are jealous about God's name. Look at the end of verse 51. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. It would be true to say that David was victorious. He was, but that's also incomplete. And scene three is titled in a way to make you think about it more accurately. We don't just have David being victorious. We have a victorious people. Verse 52 says, The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Skip ahead to verse 53. The people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. What happened to these scaredy cats in Israel's army? A few minutes ago, everyone was petrified. Well, the shocking strategy worked. Their giant problem was taken care of. So now they get to share in the victory. David, in taking care of the problem, transformed his people. They can now be described as victorious just like David. Last week when we began our two-part story of the chicken and the champion, we began by looking through biblical history and evaluating leaders. And they all left us hungry for more. They left the nation of Israel hungry for more. They cried out for a king against the advice of their judge and prophet, but God gave them Saul, who also ended up being a disappointment. But now another leader is on the scene. And his victory isn't just a victory for himself, it's a victory for the nation. 
who would have been enslaved without him. They would have lost in the representative combat. They would have been slaves of the Philistines. Our tale of two kings isn't really a tale of only two kings. We know by now that both of these kings have a role to play in getting us ready for the third king. King Saul, our chicken, showed us that outward appearances can be deceiving. He was tall, rich, handsome, and everyone thought he would be the perfect king. But by disobeying God's clear command, he was a disappointment. The anointed but not yet King David also showed us that appearances can deceive. But in the opposite direction, he was smaller, he was young, and relatively inexperienced. Yet he fulfilled the role of a king by being the first and bravest in battle and by standing in the place of his people. And that is the big idea for tonight. The better leader stands in our place. Now I know that it's almost impossible to read that big idea and not think of the substitutionary death of Jesus. And that is intentional. It's also intentional that these three scenes in our story of David and Goliath are not just three scenes in that story, but they are three scenes in our story as well. A giant problem, as I've already said, is something that we can all relate to. The giant that we have is not someone standing up to taunt us or our God. It's not your mean boss or your mean coworker. For the kids in the room, it's not your bully at school. That's not your giant. That's not your biggest problem. Our biggest problem is sin that separates us from God. And just as Goliath unrelentingly taunted the Israelites and held them in fear of slavery, so does our sin do that to us. You could say that the Israelites were already enslaved to the Philistines and waiting for someone to save them. Next scene, a shocking strategy. For the Israelites, especially Saul, the shocking thing was that a shepherd boy was going to fight for them. The shock of ours has to do with victory through defeat, life through the cross, losing oneself to find oneself, and denying yourself in order to find and embrace the greatest treasure. Just like David didn't look like the Savior they were waiting for, look at how the prophet Isaiah describes the coming Messiah. Or rather, listen as I read for you from Isaiah 53. It says, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one for whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Unexpected saviors with shocking strategies. That is King David and that is King Jesus. Both incidentally rejected by their brothers as well. There's a number of parallels between them. Finally, we have a victorious people. David's victory meant victory for the nation. The victory of Jesus is the resurrection, and that also means victory and resurrection for all who trust in him. Listen to what Peter says about our shared victory with Christ. 
2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That phrase, partakers of the divine nature, what does that even mean? I mean, we know what it means and, and we don't know what it means. Like, do, do you realize the riches that we have because of Christ's victory that we could have never obtained on our own? We could have never solved our problem on our own. And it's not just as if your debt was wiped out so that you're, you're debt-free, you're no longer in the red. It's that and it's that you're way farther in the black than you could ever spend. It's not just that he canceled your debt. He gave you riches in Christ, partakers of the divine nature. And Peter isn't alone in talking like this. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Is there anything to say but thank you, Jesus? We could have never, never imagined riches that are given to us freely because of the victory of our king, our representative. The story is famous. It's often misapplied or at least not fully applied. Similar to last week, it's appropriate to try to be brave and to be courageous like David. People often say, be like David. Be like the champion. Stand up for God no matter what others are doing. Even if everyone else is afraid, you can stand up for God. That's true. We should try to be like the champion. But that's not the main point. We shouldn't stop there. David and Goliath is about Jesus. The story is part of redemptive history foreshadowing the descendant of David who would solve our giant problem of sin. And the point for us is to follow the champion. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that God promised. He's the one who won't disappoint. The psalmist tells us to put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. But the one in whom there is salvation has come. And we have the opportunity to follow him completely. So let's do that as individuals and as a church. No one can lead like Jesus. Let's commit ourselves to following him. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Romans tells us that uh, these things were written for our instruction that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There's so much for us to learn from the old stories of the Bible, from, from the narratives that you've preserved that are um, inspired and, and perfect. There's a lot of wisdom there that we need in order to live our lives, in order to please you. And thank you for giving us that and give us an appetite to consume it and to see you in the scripture the way that you reveal yourself. And I pray that you would give us a renewed sense of how important it is to be followers of Christ, 
a phrase that gets thrown around and, and we're sincere when we say it, but we don't always think about what that means and, and the depth of, of things that that affects. We, wanna, we want our entire lives to be subject to your kingship and your lordship. And we thank you for giving us both the negative examples of King Saul, the positive example of King David, and the ultimate example and the reality of King Jesus. Help us to follow him. And it's in his name that we pray this evening.